In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Every year, people are killed by the police. When that happens, there is a procedure to follow. One that differs by province and often by police department. Usually that process starts with a police investigation. And sometimes it just ends there. But since we have long known that police investigating their own is a less than perfect way to determine what happened, we also have inquests, which empower the courts to get to the bottom of how and why deadly force was used and whether or not it was justified. In Manitoba, an inquest is required after every single death at the hands of police. Theoretically, this is a really good thing. The grieving families don't have to fight for one. The police union can't stop it from happening. The determination to hold one can't be influenced by who the victim was or what their circumstances were. Like I said, theoretically, fantastic. In practice, that's another story. It's this story, in fact. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Marsha McLeod is an investigative reporter with the Winnipeg Free Press. Hey, Marsha. Hey, how's it going? It's going very well. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. We're going to zoom out and look at the big picture of this massive investigation you guys have done. But I find it's always easier to start with the impact on an individual. So maybe first, just tell us about Vivian Karen and her son, Evan. What, what happened to him? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. I think, too, it also makes sense if we go back a little bit. Uh, Evan was shot and killed by a member of the Winnipeg police in 2017. But I'm not sure if it makes sense to start there. And so six years earlier, Vivian and her son Evan, their family, they're from Lake St. Martin, First Nation. It's about three hours from Winnipeg driving. And in 2011, very, very high water levels on the Assiniboine River basically created a proposition where Winnipeg as well as cottage country were going to be flooded. And so this sort of system was put in place using water control structures to divert water to Lake St. Martin. And in doing so, it flooded the community, Lake St. Martin First Nation. And essentially, it was turned into a swamp. Community members, in some cases, were given just a couple of hours notice to evacuate. They did not know they were not going to be coming back to their homes ever. Community members were essentially made refugees in Winnipeg and in other places and weren't able to return to the region some for eight years while new land was found and new homes were built. Evan himself was evacuated. He had been living with his grandmother uh, on the reserve and he found himself living in a hotel in Winnipeg. So if we move forward a bit in time to 2017, his mom, Vivian, had told me, you know, he had been struggling with meth use 
They had said, you know, that was a drug they'd never seen any evidence of in his life until after the evacuation. And uh, one day he had been using meth. He had become quite paranoid, very agitated, and he had been carrying knives around. And his family did call police for help. And essentially, an officer kicked down the front door of Vivian's house. Confrontation occurred, and Evan was shot uh, within seconds. And I think maybe I'll just add, you know, at the time, Evan, he was 33. He was father of three young sons. And I think just Vivian's not here speaking for herself. So I'll just say, you know, he, like his family, they really miss him. He's really missed. He was really loved. And his absence, I think, is felt very deeply. I got that really loud and clear from the family. Maybe now is a good time to talk about the procedures that are on the books for something like this. When the police use deadly force in Manitoba, what happens next? So since 2015, we have the Independent Investigation Unit. And the Independent Investigation Unit, they essentially investigate what's happened and they decide whether or not to lay charges, whether or not there's something criminal that has been done. And since the, what we call it, you know, the IIU, became operational in 2015, they have laid charges in one case involving uh, a fatal shooting by police. And so if there are criminal charges, we, ca- we have to wait you know, for those to be sort of dispensed with, and then an inquest can be called. And basically, we'll talk more about it, in, I'm sure, in detail, but an inquest in Manitoba, they're done in our provincial court, and they're presided over by a judge. And they do two things. They determine basically what happened to a person, how did they die, what are the circumstances, and also is there recommendations that can be made to prevent similar deaths from happening again. And an inquest, as we found in our investigation, it's it's many of them are quite delayed. It's a very lengthy process. You know, there's a standing hearing, who can participate, there's case conferencing. Lawyers might argue about, you know, who the witnesses are going to be, the experts. Mm-hmm. And and then we get to an inquest hearing and and then to a judge's report. So what's the status of the inquest into Evan's death? How's the process gone? So the status is basically that an inquest is being held in January of 2024. However, it has been a really long process getting here. And so the inquest in this case, because it involved police, it was automatic. So it wasn't like Vivian had to fight for an inquest to be held. Right. But on basically every count, you know, she has been fighting to be a part of the process. And I think where it makes sense to start is probably with uh, counsel, with legal counsel. So in an inquest, a family member of the victim in Manitoba, they don't have a right to legal counsel. They are not able to access uh, legal aid. And so what they're they're left with is there is a government program that says we may assist with uh, legal fees for families of victims in in an inquest. But Vivian was turned down from that. She had gotten a little bit of initial money from her mom, actually, to have a lawyer. But I think, you know, it ran out fairly quickly. But that lawyer did apply for funding and and they were turned down. Um, The province said, you know, it it uh, it wasn't in the interest of justice, essentially, to provide them with funding. So Vivian has been going without a lawyer where, you know, she's basically acting as a lawyer. She goes, she's gone to meetings, you know, it's the Winnipeg police lawyer, the crown attorney who's running the inquest, the judge. And, and her. And her, yeah. Wow. It's actually also a joint inquest. So it's also looking into the death of a young man named Adrian Laquette. He was also in Shinabe from Treaty 2 territory like Evan. And... um he was shot within about a week and a half of Evan. And just so happens, he was also the maternal uncle of Evan's two oldest sons. You looked at 20 years in this investigation of police killings. 
What are the top line takeaways? And I have to ask, how many of the victims are Indigenous? So since 2003, 29 people have been shot and killed by police in Manitoba. And of them, roughly 60% were Indigenous. And that in addition to the delays, I think that's really what got us started on the story is just seeing how delayed some inquests had been, including before COVID. So this isn't just a COVID problem uh, with the courts, but, you know, we saw families did not have counsel. We noticed that in the last 20 years, only about half of families who'd gone through inquests involving a fatal shooting by police uh, had a lawyer. And we noticed that recommendations, which judges say, have said, is one of the primary goals of inquests were not being made. So there have been just 14 inquests into fatal shootings by police out of these 29 deaths since 2003. One looked at two, two deaths. And we found that in two-thirds of them, no recommendations uh, were made. And even when recommendations were made, that's not led to meaningful change. And I would say maybe just the one other thing that was a real big part of our investigation is we looked at really when these inquests actually do come to pass, they do actually happen, who gets heard? And a big part of that is the expert witnesses who come to testify or who may come to testify. And so we found that when an expert was called, In every case, that included a police use of force trainer, and that expert would be basically asked to make determinations on the adequacy of the services training, and as well, they would be asked about the adequacy of a services training, and they'd also be asked to opine on whether they thought uh, the use of lethal force was reasonable. And we found that in every case, they did basically say that, uh, that that lethal force was reasonable. And then really beyond that, we, we haven't heard from very many other people as experts in these cases. Uh, you know, in a few inquests, a pathologist would testify. And then in a single case, we heard from an expert on systemic racism in policing. And that really only happened because of a lawyer named Corey Sheffman and his client, Brian McDougall, who is the father of Craig McDougall, who was killed by the Winnipeg police in 2008. And they fought hard to get that expert heard. It sounds like, I know you can't say this, but I can, it sounds like we're talking about basically a, a rubber stamp process here in many of these cases. Why do an inquest at all if you're not aiming to come up with recommendations and results that can take place from them? And I think that was one of the questions that kind of drove this investigation. And I think that it's one that I hope does come up among the judges who, who lead these inquests. And the lawyers who act as inquest counsel, uh, typically they're a crown attorney. And I did speak to one lawyer. Uh, his name's Donald Worm. He's a Cree lawyer, longtime lawyer who's participated in many inquests involving police, as well as inquiries, commissions. And he said to me, he just found it heartless that recommendations were not being made in, in many of these cases. And he did essentially say, you know, how could it be that the powers that be would permit such an exercise and have it be completely empty? When you press the court simply about like the delays and the fact that so many of these inquests haven't happened yet, what do they say? Well, I asked the provincial court's chief judge that, Judge Margaret Weeb. She's actually, her term as chief judge has ended, so I spoke with her right before her term ended. But she said to me, she kind of put it in two areas, both COVID and a lack of resources. And on the COVID front, you know, she said, we've been dealing with three years of COVID. Our courts are extremely backed up and we're dealing with a lack of resources, specifically in the context of judges and clerks. And I asked her because by the spring of 2022, the provincial court did make a decision to stop holding inquests. 
until at least the fall of this year, so 2023. And that also, that put a lot of inquests on the back burner and and extended the delays. And she said, you know, it was a difficult decision, but we did it because essentially we were so inundated with criminal cases, which have to be heard in a specific timeline under uh, requirements from the Supreme Court. What about the question of navigating the system for victims' families? You mentioned they don't have like a right to a lawyer. What could be done? And is anything being considered on that front? I mean, I think it's incredibly challenging. I think the bottom line is this is not a system that was created thinking about, okay, what if the families of victims don't have lawyers and they are attempting to be their own lawyer and having to negotiate that while dealing with the fallout of a loved one's death and also trying to figure out this complicated legal process. And I mean, the government says that inquests are are non-adversarial. And that's kind of the reason why somebody like Vivian Karen doesn't need a lawyer because the inquest, the process is non-adversarial. But I think in reality, and lawyers said this to me, it is adversarial. The judge is not allowed to lay blame at anyone's feet. But regardless of that, a story is told. And there are adversarial elements to the process, whether it's disclosure, whether it's cross-examination. And I think the bottom line is it's just incredibly challenging for families. And in terms of even thinking about having to view disclosure records in the case of your loved one's death, like those can be, I can't imagine what that might be like to have to review, whether it's autopsy reports or whether it's 911 calls or whether it's police notes. It's incredibly challenging for a family member. And so in terms of what is being done or what could be done, you know, Vivian said to me, even if I had an advocate who could remind me of dates, you know, explain the process more to me. I mean, what she wants is is a, is a lawyer. In one of your pieces, you're that advocate informing her of dates that she had no idea of. And that, you know, my question is just like, how does something like that happen? She is part of the process, no? She absolutely is. She is standing in the process. The problem is, is she really doesn't have a, there's nobody there who's specifically advocating for her. The inquest counsel, you know, very is not her lawyer. Their role is not to serve her as if, you know, she was their client. So I think it's just, it's a, it's a really difficult situation for, for family members. And certainly there is information that's falling through the cracks as came up when I was telling Vivian about, you know, there's been a scheduling moratorium inquests weren't being held for a year and a half. I've learned that the inquest has been scheduled. You know, Vivian let me know that uh, she hadn't been told that the inquest had been scheduled. Anytime someone is killed by the police, there are are grieving family members and loved ones who want answers. Is part of the reason this process feels empty, as somebody you mentioned described it, because one is required to be held for every police-involved death? Is that the case elsewhere in Canada? It's a good question. I think that maybe there is some inertia in this process in Manitoba where there's a little bit of a formula in terms of who maybe is brought in as an expert. And as I've seen, those experts have, at least in the inquests that have happened previously, made similar determinations about an officer's actions. And I think that there is not the pressure to really make sure that the families are included. And I think that people told me time and time again, what lawyers that I spoke with, that for an inquest to really examine some of the systemic issues that might be at play rather than say just the hours or minutes leading up to a death in very fine detail, Mm -hmm. that usually comes from lawyers of families 
as well as lawyers of, say, civil society groups um, who sometimes participate in inquests, although none of those groups did participate in these specific inquests that I looked at. But so I think it comes back to legal counsel. I think a lot of people would say families should have legal counsel and the government is probably incumbent to fund them um, if they are unable to afford a lawyer so that they can meaningfully participate. Because for my investigation, it doesn't seem that families can meaningfully participate without one. In terms of actually getting these inquests done, however empty or not they might be, you mentioned that Evans will be uh, in January. Are these all happening again? Has the process been speeded up now that we're in a, you know, not quite really post-COVID world, but behaving like it? That's a very good question. And it was fairly tricky to find out because of the way that the court tracks or, you know, doesn't quite track inquests. So they can only look up what's happening with an inquest if they're given a specific name. So I actually had to provide the court with a list of all of the people who, where I know an inquest has been called, but it wasn't, hasn't yet been held. And they looked them up one by one to tell me whether the hearing has been scheduled. And so that's how I found out that Evans' inquest has in fact been scheduled. But for instance, Judge Weeb told me inquests are starting back up and there's going to be, you know, there's inquests scheduled for, I believe, you know, October or November. But she wasn't able to tell me which those are. And when I asked the court for follow-up, they actually weren't able to tell me either because they don't have a system that shows them, okay, these are all the inquests that are coming up. So what comes next? Is there a push to change this beyond your investigation? Are there people out there advocating, pushing for change? And are they getting anywhere? Well, we're recording this before the provincial election, which takes place on October 3rd. So we'll see. Maybe the government will change and maybe a new government will want to look at this issue. But that remains to be seen. And as well, in terms of people pushing for change, I think what's coming up this fall is I'm sure, you know, across Canada, many people were aware of Aisha Hudson. She was caught, shot and killed by a member of the Winnipeg police in sort of early 2020, April. And in October, her legal team is set to make a motion to open the sort of the scope of the inquest into her death to be able to examine systemic racism. And so we're going to be following that to see what happens in that case. And is that inquest uh, expanded so that they can look at systemic racism and, and whether that played a role in her death. That'll be an interesting one. Marcia, thank you so much for chatting with us. And thanks for all the work uh, you and the investigative team are doing on this. I appreciate that. Thanks, Jordan. Marcia McLeod reporting for the Winnipeg Free Press. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can always... Offer us feedback. We got some really great feedback last week about our coverage of the notwithstanding clause. If you took the time to write in and tell us how you felt about that issue and how much it affected you, thank you for sharing that with us. The whole team appreciated it. If you feel like giving us feedback, you can always hit us up on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us. The address is hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. And you can call us and leave us a voicemail, 416-935-5935. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you could, toss us a like, a rating, a subscribe, a follow, a review, whatever is available to you to spread the good word. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.